Our reading today is Daniel 5, and it's on page 890 of the Church Bibles, if you wanted to follow with me. That's page 890. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the figures of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and, tell me, and tell, tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself. And give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, 
and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from this temple brought to you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote in the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Lizzie, for that reading. We just say a short prayer as we begin. Father, would you give us grace this morning as we study your word and reflect on it? Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Militant atheism is not merely incidental or marginal to communist policy, it is not a side effect, but the central pivot. Now, you might think, That's a bit of an odd quote to start a sermon with, and and to be honest, you're right. But it's useful to help us understand how a country set itself up in complete opposition to God. I'm talking here of the the Soviet Union and the systematic state-sponsored attempts to eliminate Christianity. Thousands of clergy were murdered, churches were destroyed or turned into things like public toilets, Land and property was taken. Christian thinkers were rounded up and sent to labour camps. And it didn't stop. In fact, it became clear that those methods weren't working. And so the government redoubled their efforts. They killed even more Christians. It's an example of a government that has set itself up in complete opposition to the living God. Our passage this morning is about this. It's about what happens when powers, institutions and individuals set themselves up against God. And the lesson is this, that the days of those who have set themselves up against God are numbered. Now we're working our way through the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel at the moment. We had a break last week for open week. But if you were with us the week before that, you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 4, we read King Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony about how he came to faith, how he he repented, why he, he turned away from pagan gods and turned towards the living God. God humbled him in a frankly bizarre way, and in doing so, he caused King Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge that God rules. 
and he starts to worship God. He recognizes that God is in charge and King Nebuchadnezzar isn't. It's a mouthful, isn't it? And that that is a good thing. Now, coming to Daniel chapter 5, we find King Belshazzar sitting on the throne in Babylon. Who was Belshazzar? Well, verse 2 of our passage describes Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. It was actually his grandfather, though. The term father and son are often used to describe family descendants. So, So King Belshazzar was a descendant of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. King Belshazzar's father was actually King Nabonidus. Um, and in fact, both kind of ruled at the same time. So uh, whilst King Nabonidus was out on military campaigns, King Belshazzar was charged with ruling the great kingdom of Babylon from home. Now, growing up, I, I love to hear stories about my grandparents, like how my grandpa uh, was rescued from near Dunkirk during the Second World War, and he went on to be a medic in North Africa. As a boy, I was eager to sit on their knees and hear their stories. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened for Belshazzar, but he was told family stories too. He would have sat there listening to what happened to his granddad, King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 22 of our passage tells us that King Belshazzar knew how God had given his granddad greatness and glory and splendor, how because of that everyone feared him, but how his heart became arrogant and proud. And so God humbled him by driving him away from people, giving him the mind like an animal, until he acknowledged that the Most High God was sovereign over all. Then he was restored. So in some sense, we can say that Belshazzar was the son of believers. He was from a family that recognised the living God. But Belshazzar had long since forgotten the faith of his fathers. We find, himself setting him, we find him setting himself up against God. So here he is throwing a huge party. I mean, I, mean, I really do mean huge. A thousand nobles were invited, the most powerful men in the land. But there was no doubt at all who was the centre of attention, Belshazzar. Our version has it here that he was drinking wine with them. Other versions have it that he was drinking wine in front of them. And so perhaps right there in front of them all, he he took the cup and he drank wine. Maybe it was some kind of religious ceremony. Perhaps they all stopped. Perhaps they all went quiet and watched as as he drank wine with his wives and his concubines. And then as he's drinking this wine, he issues the order to bring in the gold and silver goblets from Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now this was an extraordinary thing to do. It would have sent shockwaves through the old guard, through those who remember his grandfather's proclamation in Daniel 4, that, that God's signs are great, his wonders are mighty, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Here is the grandson of the great King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who was famously humbled by the living God. And in a deliberate act of defiance against those who had gone before, but But more importantly, from the living God, who Nebuchadnezzar had learned to fear, he takes the precious goblets that were taken from Jerusalem, fills them up with wine, and starts drinking from them. Now, these are the templates, goblets from the temple of God in Jerusalem. They were designed to help God's people remember his presence with them, helping them to remember the holiness 
of the Lord, and that they too should be set apart for worship for them. And the great King Nebuchadnezzar, he understood all of this, but his grandson, well, he's defiant. He's defiant in public. He's a bit like a teenager posting a picture of themselves smoking and drinking on Instagram so the whole world can see the defiance against his parents. He's doing it in front of a thousand of the most powerful men in the land. And he's saying, look at me. Is anyone as great as I am? Those who used to worship God when my grandfather was king was, where are they now? I don't need God. We don't need God. The king is setting himself up in complete opposition to God. It even appears that he believes that the pagan gods he's praising in verse 4 exist to serve him, to give him and his kingdom riches and power. He is arrogant enough to believe that, his, that he has ultimate authority and he's totally rejecting God's authority. Those who set themselves up against God reject his authority. But Belshazzar has forgotten one of the family stories about a dream that caused his granddad to quake. You'll remember it if you've been with us from Daniel chapter 2. A huge statue was in front of Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. It was made out of really strong materials and it represented four kingdoms. It looked totally invincible, yet a great rock came up and totally destroyed it. Daniel interpreted the dream back then, teaching Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon wasn't actually that impressive and it certainly wasn't going to last, and that the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And Belshazzar knew all of this. And so here we are. The party's in full swing. The wine is flowing. King Belshazzar is uh, enjoying the big boy in front of Everyone, right at the centre of it all, until, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Now, if you want to cause the top dog, the centre of attention to stop, to sit up and to listen to you, I mean, this is probably the most effective way. Belshazzar stops. He watches as the great hand gently scrawls across the wall, writing out the letters of four words, and he is absolutely terrified. His face turns a pale white. Our version says that his legs became weak. The King James Version, I like this, has his loins were loosened. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can imagine what that might be referring to. His, his knees are knocking together. It's just a vivid description of sheer terror. There's a little image there, hopefully, that helps to bring it to life. I mean, it's not a surprise about this, is it? I mean, what is going on here? Well, after regaining some sort of composure, he calls for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, the wise men of Babylon. And you can almost hear his panic here when he says to them, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest in the kingdom. Just, just tell me what this means. Does this remind you of of past chapters? We've seen in the book of Daniel before that the wise men of Babylon are called to interpret various different things. But they fail, and they fail again now. They couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and vision. They can't interpret back then. They can't interpret the writing on the wall now. As one author explains, their abject failure 
on each occasion exposes the futility of human wisdom in matters of ultimate truth. And seeing that none of these wise men could tell him what it meant, Belshazzar becomes even more terrified. His face grows even whiter. Enter the queen. Well, it could be the queen mother, actually. The translation isn't clear, but I like to think it's his mother-in-law that speaks some wisdom into the situation, because it often is for me. So, Anyway... Whichever one it is, she clearly is senior. She remembers Daniel. She speaks of his God-given power to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems. Who could be more suited? So enter Daniel. And if we're in any doubt about Belshazzar's belief, the ultimate power lies with Belshazzar, despite what is going on here. Just look how he greets Daniel in verse 13. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles, My father, the king, brought from Judah. So here he is, he's still rejecting any notion that human power is given by God. Because he's rejecting what we're told in Daniel chapter 1, that it was the Lord who delivered his people into the hands of the Babylonian king. It wasn't the king himself. Ultimate power and authority lie with God. But not in Belshazzar's worldview. Even now when he's terrified. Now, before we move on to the interpretation, we're going to have a little pause to think about what this section is teaching us. It's easy, I I think, from this passage to jump straight to us. We might even think, we might think, for example, gosh, I, I don't want to be like Belshazzar, or I would never be like Belshazzar, or I know someone just like Belshazzar. But I think an important application of this passage is bigger than us. It has to do with kingdoms and nations. Let me just explain. When I was a boy at school, we used to sing songs in assembly. Uh, One always stuck with me, uh, probably because it had a catchy tune. And if if you know it, then I'm sorry, you might have it stuck in your head all afternoon. Uh, It was called Bread and Fishes. And some of the lyrics went like this. They told me of prophets and uh, pupils and prophets and kings and all of the one God who knows everything. We also sang classics like All Things Bright and Beautiful, which is wonderful. But my son doesn't sing anything like this at school these days. In fact, he often comes back singing Bruno Mars. My my point is this. Our society has shifted, not so subtly, away from its Christian heritage. Those of you who are older than me will know this even more acutely. And to be honest, my example here is probably pretty poor, and I'm sure you can all think of better examples. Perhaps a, a slightly better one is the inscription on the Royal Exchange in the city. If you're ever in the city and near bank, pay a visit to the Royal Exchange and look up and you'll find the words, the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's from Psalm 24. How brilliant that right in the middle of the financial district, a place full of rampant greed and idolatry, there is this reminder to those that look up. But could you imagine a quote from the Bible being emblazoned on a new building in the city now. It would just never happen, would it? And if it did, there'd be outcry from various places. Now, I'm not, of course, saying that we were living in some kind of Christian paradise in the past, but it was clear that Christianity was one of the key foundations in our society. I work in local government, and it used to be commonplace that prayers were said before every council meeting, but no longer. It's not just the heritage which is gone. We actually see Christianity maligned 
in this country now. We see our God rejected by governments. We see secular humanism dominating every agenda. As early as 1943, the then Archbishop of Canterbury warned that Christian tradition was in danger of being undermined by secular humanism, which hoped to retain Christian values without Christian faith. And now what we're seeing is rejection both of Christian values and of Christian faith. (coughs) So are we as a nation becoming so arrogant that we don't need God? Are we looking for alternative gods that satisfy our desire for power and authority? Are we setting ourselves up against God? Now, I'm not suggesting that our country is at the same point that Belshazzar was in setting itself up against God, but we need to be mindful. And that is why it's so important that we pray for our country. It's why it's so important we pray for our leaders. We need to continue to pray that God would continue to put Christians in positions of authority and that those who are in positions of authority would be wise and they would be strengthened not to compromise. We need to pray that the writing is not on the wall for our country, that our nation's days are not numbered, that it will turn back to the living God. Now, as individuals, we'll face pressures from all kinds of places to adopt the worldview that God has no authority here. God has no power here. We don't do God. The individual is God. Perhaps at school or college, you are maligned by holding true to the fact that the living God of heaven is Lord and that what the Bible says goes. Or perhaps at work, your boss acts like the supreme authority and he'll put immense pressure on you to do things that both you and him know are morally wrong. Maybe your friends and colleagues tell you that you're on the wrong side of history. and You don't even sometimes dare share with people that you're a follower of God, perhaps even to close family and friends. This passage is teaching us that those who set themselves up against God, those who fail to acknowledge his authority, be they celebrities, comedians, monarchs, presidents, prime ministers, chief executives, bosses, individuals, all that will count as nothing in front of God. Not only do those who set themselves up against God reject his authority, but they are also judged. They're judged. Let's go back to the passage. Daniel is ready now to address the king. But first he wants to make clear that God's wisdom cannot be bought by anyone. No king has anything they can offer to God which would pay for God's understanding. So Daniel says, verse 17, keep your gifts, give your rewards to someone else. He probably had an idea that very soon they will be completely worthless in a short while because it was time for judgment. And so Daniel compares Belshazzar with the great King Nebuchadnezzar. Firstly, Nebuchadnezzar, what was he like? Well, Daniel tells us that God gave him sovereignty over the kingdom, greatness, glory, splendor. Surely he was blessed beyond imagination. He was feared. He could do what he pleased. But his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. What happened? God took it all away from him. His throne was gone. His glory was totally stripped. God totally humiliated him by giving him the mind of an animal. He lived like an ox. Until verse 21, he acknowledged 
that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Now, on the other side, we have King, King Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Now, the things that had once been King Nebuchadnezzar's was King Belshazzar's now. The glory, the power, the wealth, the ability to throw a party with a thousand nobles. Not only that, but he had something that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have. He grew up with the knowledge of who God was. He'd grown up knowing the stories about how God could humble a king. He knew Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So surely he would recognise God's authority. Surely he wouldn't make the same mistakes and become arrogant and hardened towards God. But we know, of course, that that is exactly what he did. Verse 20, in verse 23, Daniel says, Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. Belshazzar praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. These gods are dead. Yet the living God of heaven, the one who actually holds Belshazzar's life in his hands, he would not honour. And so finally Daniel gets to the writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, perez. They are the words, the meanings are in the next verses. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson or Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So God has numbered, God has weighed, and God has divided. God is bringing Belshazzar's reign to an end. God has weighed Belshazzar and found him wanting. This reminded me of Psalm 62.9. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, there are nothing. Together they are only a breath. And so God is about to divide his kingdom up. This here is the end of the Babylonian kingdom, that once mighty kingdom divided amongst others. And so on hearing this, Belshazzar, he falls on his face and mourns and weeps and asks God to stay his hand of judgment for he knows he's been proud and foolish and set himself up against the God of heaven. Well, no, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that. He continues to act like the mighty king, like the one with power and authority. He gives Daniel's gifts and he honours him. But the judgment had been pronounced. God wasn't giving him another chance. That night, that very night, he was slain and his kingdom taken over and divided. Those who set themselves up against God are judged. That's what this passage is teaching us, isn't it? Those who refuse to accept God's authority, those who hear the warnings but do nothing, those who are proud of heart, thinking that they have no need to submit to God, they'll be judged by him. At a point in time that God has determined, for he has numbered all of our days, he will weigh them and they'll be found wanting. And just as God divided Belshazzar's kingdom, so he will divide the world between those who accept his authority and those who set themselves up against him. There is no in-between. And so a question. What are you to do with this? 
Well, there are a number of things depending on where you are. Firstly, if you're not a follower of God, if you have not accepted his authority, then listen to this passage. This is God's word. Maybe even this is the first time you're hearing this. And I would urge you to reflect on who he is. If, like this passage explains, God is sovereign over all things. If God numbers our days. If God weighs us up, finding us wanting, because we're not as we should be. And goodness, don't we know we're not as we should be? Then we need a solution. Otherwise, what, what hope can we have? We can't presume on God's grace, having some sense within us that everything will just work out okay in the end. It won't. It, it can't. We need help. Mighty King Belshazzar had no way out. But we do. And that is to run to Christ. For he is the one who took God's judgment that was due to us. On the cross, he paid for our sins. And so, when, when we come to Christ, and then when God weighs us up, he will find the scales are balanced the other way. Instead of being found wanting, we're found righteous and forgiven and holy. Such is the love that God has for us, that he has provided a way for Belshazzar's story to not be our story, even though that's what we deserve. So come to him. Acknowledge him as Lord this morning. Secondly, if you've been coming to church for a while, maybe years even, and you've listened to God's word over that time, but for whatever reason you have not yet bowed the knee, acknowledging your need for a saviour. This is a warning for you. Be warned. God may give us many opportunities to come to him and to repent, like he did for Nebuchadnezzar, a man who was so nearly lost, but in the end he repented and believed. Or God may be swift in his judgment, like he was for Belshazzar, who actually knew through his granddad's testimony who God was. He heard it, but It did not change him. We do not know how many days we have left. So today is the day. Let God's word change your heart this morning and come to him. Thirdly, if you're a follower of God, I think there's two applications. Firstly, in in light of what I've just said, let's be thankful. We're in Christ. That means Belshazzar's story cannot be our story. We will not be slain like he was For Christ was slain for us. Judgment has been paid for. Let's praise him. Let's be thankful. And secondly, let's be comforted. I spoke earlier about how our culture and society is intent on maligning God and those who put their faith in him. Now you may be facing some real pressures in that area now. At home, school, work, wherever, with friends. Now, you might also not be at this moment, but I'm fairly sure that it won't be long before you face some kind of pressure to think that God has no authority here. The passage gives us hope. It says, don't panic. Why? Because the living God of heaven is in ultimate control. Now, he knows our struggles and temptations that we face from people to reject him. Those things aren't hidden from him, and so we shouldn't hide them from him too, but we should, we should be honest, we should pray about them. 
And we know that he has numbered the days of those who set themselves up against God. God's people, God's kingdom cannot be crushed by such people. And be comforted, for God has also numbered our days too. Psalm 90, verse 12, shows us what we are to do with that knowledge. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So let us be wise with our days and enjoy the fact that God has numbered them, which is great news, because he walks with us, every single one of us, holding us firm despite the pressures that we face from the world. He holds us firm until the very last one and then glory awaits. Let's find hope in that truth. Let's pray. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Father God, we thank you for those words from the book of Romans. And we praise you because you are the ultimate authority. Nothing and nobody compares to you. Nothing and nobody is higher than you. So we thank you for this passage this morning. A challenge and a warning for some, a comfort for others, but most of all, one that brings you glory, reveals your sovereignty, humbles us, points us to Christ, in whom we find refuge and hope. May we live our lives in light of that truth for all the days that you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the band.